Good evening, friends. This is Franz Weinschenk, your host on Valley Writers Read, welcoming you to tonight's show. We've got two short, short stories for you tonight. The first one is called Dog Days and is written by Anne Davigo. And it's going to take us to the little town of Sihuan Tanejo in Mexico, a typical coastal town often visited by cruise ships who ferry their passengers in so they can browse through the main street visiting all the tourist attractions. Nearby in a restaurant, we get to meet Lane, who has moved down from Champaign, Illinois, and now makes Sihuan Tanejo his home. But here's tonight's author, Anne DeVigo, to fill us in on all the details. Dog Day. Lane's dog nuzzled his leg with her soft little snout. Are you hungry, sweetie? Lane carved some of the Casa Rosa's succulent stewed pork from his plate and isolated the meat from the rice and beans. His dog looked lovely, her silky hair shining. He'd washed her in the kitchen sink this afternoon and blown her dry with his hair dryer set on low. Dance for me, Ziwa, he said. She rose on her tiny hind feet, her front paws delicately patting the air. Lane threw a bit of pork, and she snapped it up before it hit the floor. There you are, sweetie. Roberto, one of the three evening waiters at Casa Rosa, headed for a patio table with plates of pollo con mole and carne asada. Ziwa pranced in his path. Roberto sidestepped to avoid crushing her under his sandal, but tangled himself momentarily in the dog's leash. Surreptitiously, he kicked at her. He missed her jaw by a whisker, but Ziwa struck up a piteous yelping. Oh, poor thing! A pudgy woman at the next table slapped her thighs with a fleshy sound, summoning Ziwa for a consoling pat. Come see Bonnie! Bonnie was obviously a tourist, her straw hat decorated with embroidery in the colors of the Mexican flag, and her sunglasses dangling from an elastic band around her neck. She was most likely from the cruise ship, anchored in the town's modest harbor, like a battleship in a bathtub. So tiny, such a teensy little doggy, isn't she, Patsy? Bonnie's hat tilted lower on her forehead. Patsy made kissing noises. Lane shuddered as Bonnie's fingers wove through his sweetie's hair, down her back, over her flanks. He placed the linen napkin on the table beside his plate and walked over to retrieve Ziwa. When he cuddled her against his neck, he smelled Bonnie's perfume on the dog's coat. Lane slipped the leash over the back of his chair so she couldn't get away again and sat down to finish his wine. It was a Mexican white, pleasant but not distinctive. He fanned the front of his linen shirt and raised his face to the languid swirls of air from the ceiling fan. He couldn't eat any more, thinking about Bonnie's thick fingers and Roberto's furtive kick. 
he blotted his pale forehead and neat graying mustache. He'd bought Ziwa at home in Illinois during a long winter four years ago. He'd named her Tootsie at first, but one morning, while he wrestled the snowblower up and down his driveway, his longing for Ziwa Tanejo swept over him, and he renamed her Ziwa. More wine, senor? Roberto smoothed the carefully folded towel over his arm. After the waiter's unforgivable kick, Lane refused to be distracted as usual by Roberto's thick torso and firm biceps. Bonnie hitched her chair around, half-facing Lane's table, a margarita glass in her sunburned hand. Are you in Zihuatanejo on vacation? She ran her tongue over the salt on the edge of her glass. No, I'm a resident. He rolled the word around in his mouth again silently. Resident. Eighteen years of two-week vacations, and he was finally here for good. He smiled to himself. The first blizzard of the season had hit Illinois yesterday. He watched CNN footage of the traffic tie-ups. His old neighbor in Champaign was probably getting good use out of Lane's blower. The tourists looked envious. We have to be back to the ship by 11, said Patsy. She swayed to the music of the mariachi band performing in front of Casa Rosa. Ziwa strained at the leash, anxious to go outside. Lane tugged her back. His whitewashed adobe house on the other side of the harbor was too quiet. The only sound at this time of night was noise from his neighbor's TV drifting through the open windows. He came to town twice a day, sometimes more, for someone to talk English to. Ziwa scuttled back to him, stroking her front paws on his leg. Lane's rimless spectacles slid down as he bent to scoop her up. He clamped his thin legs together to provide a platform for her paws. Ouch, your nails are too long. Ziwa's tongue caressed his cheek, overlapping onto his lenses. She doesn't like Dr. Garcia, he said to Bonnie. Dr. Garcia doesn't talk to her and pet her before he does a procedure. He just cuts her nails, snap, snap, gives her a shot, boom. Not like our veterinarian from Champagne. Lane suddenly felt a warning prickle on the bare skin of his arm. He twisted in his chair and found Juanita standing at his elbow, as quiet as a hungry street dog. She was eight, possibly ten. Her thin brown arms were strung with necklaces for sale, strands of brown beads, coral twigs, and pieces of broken soda bottles worn opalescent by the waves. Lane saw her everywhere along the bay, trudging barefoot through miles of open-air restaurants and harbor bistros. Rosa, the owner of Casa Rosa, gave Juanita a venomous glare from her three-legged stool behind the cash register. Rosa was poised to throw Juanita out at the first sign of irritation from a customer. Hola, Lane. Juanita pressed his arm and clacked her beads. It was dark outside, but no one was accompanying her, 
not even her crone of a grandma. Lane wondered if the old lady was the one who kept Juanita's white dress and yellow pinafore so clean. Her shiny hair was neatly braided, then folded up and fastened to the back of her head with a barrette. Juanita's black eyes challenged him. Lane felt a stir in his lap. Ziwa wriggled over to lick the girl's fingers. Juanita hunkered down and laughed, a sound strangely low for a child. As Ziwa's rough tongue bathed her cheeks and lips, Juanita moved her face in ecstatic circles. Bad baby! Lane snatched Ziwa up in a football carry. He hoisted Juanita from her crouch and stuffed a peso in her pinafore pocket. When Rosa closed the cash drawer after making change, she made a mock lunge at the girl. Juanita scooted out the front door. A minute later, Wayne saw her slip in through the patio entrance and circulate among the outdoor diners. The unplated fringe of her folded braid stuck up like a palm frond over the curve of her head. What kind of dog is she? Bonnie broke the silence. A Pomeranian. Very rare in Mexico. I have to be extremely careful. Keep her with me at all times or someone might steal her. Lane's fingernails scratched the leather leash. Thieves, of course, can't tell she's spayed. Ziwa sniffed at the rim of Lane's plate with her moist nose. He unwrapped a corn tortilla and broke off a bit for her. She grasped it with her sharp teeth. Lane focused on her little snapping bites and felt better. You get nervous, don't you? He ran his index finger over the soft hair on the pink interior of her ear. Your boyfriend, the Lhasa Apso, is 3,000 miles away. Back in Champagne, the shop would have been closed for two hours now. Lane cleared his throat to ease the tightness. Buck up, he told himself. You're living in paradise. Selling his interest in paper and potpourri to Dwight was probably the best move he'd ever made. Cartons filled with Christmas stock were arriving daily by UPS about now, piling up in the back room. Lane had worked late every night in November and December, selling and restocking his unique cards, stationery, and wrapping paper. By the time he'd closed, the roads were dark and slippery. It was after the Christmas season last year when Lane and Dwight quarreled for the last time. Lane had come home from the store after taking down the decorations. Silk-wrapped gold and silver balls, hundreds of angels, 5,000 little Italian lights. The house was dark, and no one was home. Dwight had left the shop early, and he must have driven to Chicago to hit the clubs. Even with his coat on, Lane had trembled in the chill house. He lay down on the bed with Zihuac huddled close to him and covered the two of them with an afghan. He awoke at 4 a.m., miserable in his wrinkled clothes, and saw Dwight undressing for bed. Ziwa growled, her dark eyes glittering in the reflected light from the bathroom. 
Dwight snapped on the electric blanket. When he slipped under the covers, Lane caught the scent of sex in Dwight's hair. Again. Lane jumped out of bed. He sat at the kitchen table for the rest of the night with Ziwa on his lap. When dawn came, gray light silhouetted the trees outside in the snow, their bare branches raised like grasping fingers. He went to his computer and reserved a seat on the next flight to Mexico. By mid-morning, he had an offer ready for Dwight. Lane got cash up front because Dwight, who liked to play the role of the astute business owner, didn't have a head for detail. In the Casa Rosa, Lane rubbed away the frown between his eyes. The ship reminded him of Christmas. That must be why he felt so unsettled. From his seat, he saw the white lights outlining the deck railings, winking around the stacks, and trailing down the hawsers in a graceful arc. In another hour or two, Bonnie and Patsy would be scrambling to the jitney for the ride back to the ship. It would churn out of the harbor. Lane signaled Roberto for the check. He unfastened Ziwa's leash from the chair rail and pulled his leather wallet from his hip pocket. Fifty pesos was more than enough. Uh, Forty, maybe. The swinging doors to the kitchen opened and angry voices drifted out. Rosa descended from the stool behind the register, ready for battle. She scuttled into the kitchen and berated the kitchen staff in her machine gun Spanish. With Rosa preoccupied, Juanita padded in from the patio. Her black eyes assessed the customers for a possible sale. She made for Bonnie and Patsy, cocking her head to one side as if in little girl shyness. Ten pesos, she said, holding up one arm and then the other. Well, honey, what's your name, Patsy said. Ten pesos. She's so cute. Where's your mama? Patsy asked. Metallic crashes burst from the kitchen. Ziwa hopped down from Lane's lap. She galloped for the restaurant entrance, her short legs a blur of motion. In a syncopated second and a half, Juanita followed. As the pair raced across the sidewalk, Lane caught the flash of Juanita's teeth, a white smile against her dark skin. Lane scrambled to his feet. His sandals slapped four steps on the tile as he lunged after the pair. On the fifth step, one foot stuck on the dried sugar of a spilled margarita and the other continued for the door. He fell, the slick, hard tiles knocking the breath from his chest. Robbed of air, Lane accepted that he would die ignominiously in a pool of stale liquor. His eyes closed in resignation. When he opened them, he spent a few seconds focused on the whirling blades of the ceiling fan. He turned his head on the cool tiles and saw a ring of peering faces that crowned tall triangular bodies. A perspective, he thought crazily. His sweetie. Lane's head throbbed as he sat up. Are you all right? 
Bonnie held a glass of water and a damp napkin. His shirt was wet. He leaned over his lap to ease the dizziness. Take it easy, senor. Roberto caught his arm. Where? Is anything broken? Roberto patted Lane's forehead with the end of his towel. How about your head? I think you hit your head, Bonnie said. Lane struggled to stand, but Roberto laid a heavy hand on his shoulder. Have you seen them? Lane's voice sounded weak in his ears. Bonnie fanned him with a plastic-covered menu. Don't worry about that just yet. My dog, he insisted. She is gone, senor. Rosa folded her arms across her chest. Lane pushed to his feet, straightening his knees to keep his legs from shaking. I've got to find her. You should sit. Drink some wine, Rosa said. Lane took a couple of experimental steps. Bonnie sighed and dabbed at the sweat on her upper lip. If you're so determined, we'll help. Tell you what, Patty and I will walk down to the archaeological museum and come back up the Avenida. She turned to the other diners. Who else will volunteer? An Australian couple with backpacks agreed to search the public market, open until ten for the ship's passengers. The old woman, who sat by the entrance drinking lemonade, nodded when Bonnie told her to watch the beach. Lane knew the old woman was deaf. He set off along the west arm of the harbor toward the naval station. After a volleyball game in the plaza, the sidewalks were crowded with high school students flirting and laughing. Ziwa, here, sweetie! Ziwa, Ziwa! The moon had risen, and his shirt molded to his chest in the evening breeze, but Lane's thoughts were snared in nightmare possibilities. She might have been hit by one of the dozens of white taxis that careened along the narrow streets. He tortured himself with the thought of the dead cat hit by a taxi which had lain for three days across the road from his house. Juanita might be part of a plot to sell Waziwa to traffickers and valuable animals. Wealthy Mexican women loved the exotic Pomeranians. Or worse, Lane's feet thudded as he ran. A small colony of Vietnamese fishermen lived close by. Whispers circulated that they ate dogs. He groaned. The naval station at the tip of the harbor was dark, its thick wooden gate locked. Palm branches clicked against a whitewashed wall. He held his breath, but the only sound was the lap of the waves against the shore. He circled through the residential section of Zihuatanejo. He peered through the gates, catching glimpses of faces inside the houses stained blue with the flickering light from the television screens. As he stumbled over the uneven sidewalk and called her name, his throat grew sore and raspy. Lane didn't know how much time had passed.
The jitneys had pulled in, however. Bonnie and Patsy were crossing the sidewalk toward the wharf. There was no sign of your little dog. We're very sorry, but we have to go. This is the last boat back. Bonnie's hands fiddled with the strap on her purse. Lane turned his head away as he thanked them. With the departure of the tourists, Roberto carried the patio chairs inside and stacked the tables. He'd not seen the runaway. The Australian couple returned and reported no sight of girl or dog. They left for their hotel. Passers-by bumped Lane as he stood in the middle of the sidewalk, unable to move. An old man at the restaurant next door plucked a doleful song from his guitar and sang in a quavery voice. Finally, Lane stirred. Tomorrow, he'd post handbills all over town, but tonight, he'd search the beach again. He cut through the palm grove, where the fishermen kept their equipment in painted wooden lockers. His sweetie had never liked fish, but Lane sometimes came here to buy fresh tilapia when he didn't feel like eating at Rose's. A group of fishermen gathered in the dark. Their cigarette tips glowed, and Lane caught the odor of marijuana. Tide was going out. The ocean sounds reduced to a sibilant whisper. Under the nearby trees, someone laughed. Lane stopped, feeling the grains of sand that had crept inside his sandals. It was a light laugh from a small throat. He walked slowly toward the sound, his hands reaching out in the darkness like a blind man. A voice murmured. He dropped to his knees and crawled across the sand. The two of them were there in a dribble of moonlight. Juanita was on her back, one bare leg crossed over the other, her dress and pinafore pooled around her thighs. Her entire necklace inventory was strung around her neck and rested on her chest. Her fingers idly combed the strands. Ziwa lay beside her. Lane's upper lip curled into a snarl. With a howl, he pounced, grabbing the dog and the girl by the nape. His fingers dug into their neck tendons. He shook them until Juanita's necklaces leaped, until Ziwa's leather leash writhed like a serpent, until Lane was thinking furiously of Dwight, of the clubs where Dwight danced with others, of the beds where he slept with others. Fishermen appeared out of the dark, forming a cautious circle around them. One spoke, but Lane's wail drowned the words. Lane stopped, finally, releasing the girl and dog, dizzy with the throbbing in his head. Juanita leaped up and made her escape. Ziwa started after her, but Lane snatched the loop of her leash. He slowly gathered the leather strand and lifted her in his arms. Her coat was matted with seaweed 
and some reeking gelatinous ooze. Lane gagged and dropped her to the sand. Come, he said, and jerked her along behind him. Deja que salga la luna, deja que se meta el sol, deja que caiga la noche, pa' que empiece nuestro amor. Deja que las estrellitas me llenen de inspiración, para decirte cositas muy bonitas. Corazón, yo sé que no hay en el mundo amor como el que me das, y sé que noche con noche. That was Anne DeVigo reading Dog Day, the story of a man who has run away from Champaign, Illinois, but still very much remembers his humiliation at the hands of his friend and business partner, Dwight. When love is suppressed, says Havelock Ellis, hate takes its place. In this case, you can't help but wonder if Lane is just sort of taking out all of his bitterness and resentment on the residents of Sihuan Tanejo down there on the coast of Mexico, the way he treats his dog, the way he mixes with the visitors, the way he interacts with the waiters and cooks at Casa Rosa, and especially the way he treats little Juanita, the native jewelry sales girl. Our next story is a lot more on the lighter side. It's a memoir by James Varner entitled My 40 Ford Coupe. And here to read that story is Marv Allen. I was just 14 in 1954 when my dad said, Son, it is time for you to learn how to drive. Needless to say, I was very thrilled and excited to get behind the wheel of a car. I said, Dad, you have to be fifteen and a half to get a learner's permit. Hogwash, he said. My dad, a native Texan transplanted to California in the 1920s, was a self-willed, grassroots, bootstraps kind of man. He made his own rules and he lived by them. If the law of the land said you had to be sixteen to drive, or at least to have a license to drive, that was for other people. It didn't fit his realm of common sense. Therefore, it didn't apply. At the time of Dad's announcement, the family car was a 1950 Buick, the one with the portholes on the sides of the front fenders, and drove like a Sherman tank. It was probably made out of World War II surplus tank parts. This car was one big heavy car. One day my sister, who is four years to the day older than I am, was driving the Buick. She pulled the car into the garage and forgot to set the brake or put the car in park. After she got out and went into the house, the car rolled out of the garage, down the drive, across the street, and nearly knocked down the garage across the street. The garage had to be rebuilt, but there wasn't even a dent on the car. The Buick was really my mom's car. She drove it most of the time. My mom was very short, about five feet, and a bit on the chubby side. Her legs did not quite reach the gas or brake pedals. She would have to point her toes and stretch out to push the gas or step on the brake. She drove in spurts and jerks. She would press down on the gas pedal until her leg tired and then let up. 
After I had grown and married, my mother was driving my wife and newborn daughter from Bakersfield to our home in Los Osos, California, in a big Cadillac. Mom liked big cars. They stopped for a refreshment and then headed out Highway 41, Mom doing her stretch press release maneuver, and was pulled over by a highway patrolman thinking he had a drunk driver. He ran her through the sobriety test and realized that she was not in fact drunk, just a little too short to drive. He assessed the situation and let them drive on. At the time Dad taught me to drive, he had a big Studebaker pickup, 1947, I believe. It was green and looked like a big frog. At least it jumped like a frog when I let the clutch out too fast or uneven. One day during a training session in the green frog, I was stopped at a stop sign. It was Sunday morning. Three elderly black ladies were crossing the street to go to Mount Zion, a church on the other side of the street. Just after they passed in front of the pickup, Dad said, Now let the clutch out slowly and give it some gas. Whatever I did was just the opposite of a well-coordinated, smooth departure from the stop. The pickup leaped and hopped across the intersection. The old ladies turned around with deep fear on their faces. The one closest to the truck, her eyes rolled back and she turned a shade of green about the same color as the green frog. She must have thought her days had come to an end. She looked like Red Fox in Sanford and Son, clutching her heart, saying, "'Lord, I am coming!' I felt very bad about scaring the ladies. I put many hours and miles on that green frog. Most were after Mom and Dad had gone to bed for the night. I would wait until everyone was asleep, sneak out with the key in hand. One of my buddies, usually Wayne Letier, and I would push the truck out the drive and down the street, out of range of sound, start it up, and go for a ride around town. Just before dawn, I would be back home in bed, the truck secure in the back. Looking back on it now, Dad must have known. The engine would be hot, gas low, and more miles on the truck than when he parked it the night before. The most risky thing we ever did on one of those night rides was the bell-ringing venture. That particular night, three of my friends spent the night. After the folks were asleep, we took off. The county sheriff lived in a big house with a large backyard. In the middle of the backyard was a large fire bell about 24 inches high and 18 inches in diameter, once used to alarm people that a fire had broken out. Well, we decided to go ring the bell. It was about 2 a.m. We drove up the alley behind his house, sat there for a few minutes to get up the courage, then drew lots to see who would go ring the bell. I was the ringer. I jumped over the fence, ran to the bell, gave it two big gongs, and ran back to the truck. We split in smoke and rubber. It was a thrill, a real adrenaline rush for four 14-year-old boys. We got away with it, but it was also very scary. I started thinking about what could have happened, an accident trying to get away, getting caught and going to juvenile hall, getting the crap knocked out of me by my dad, a reprimand by the sheriff who happened to be a friend of my dad, that was one of the last night rides we took, at least as a group. There were other night rides, though, in my 40 Ford Coupe. As I said, my sister is exactly four years older than I am. I was born September 25, 1940, on her fourth birthday. Mom and Dad gave her a little boy doll the day I was born, her birthday. That doll was her brother. When the folks brought me home, I was not the brother her doll was. I was not to be there. 
When I was fourteen and she was eighteen, all of her friends were driving and had cars. Alfred Alexander had a 1944 Ford Deluxe Coupe, metallic green with white roll and pleated leather upholstery, a la Tijuana. The hood and trunk were leaded in, and it had a 1948 Mercury V8 engine. It was the neatest car I ever saw. It was also built in the year of my birth, 1940. I told Alfred that I would love to have that car. He said he would sell it to me for $300. I had been working for my dad for the summer, and I had the $300. I took the 300 to Alfred. He gave me the pink and the keys. I drove the car home. I was 14. My mother about had a heart attack. My dad said, pull it into the bag, park it, and give me the key. No problem, I had two keys. Thus began my solo night rides in my 40 Ford Coupe. I wouldn't say that I was a wild, unruly, disobedient kid in my teen years. I was actually a pretty good kid and respected my parents and elders in general. I was, however, adventurous, took a few risks, and more or less did what I wanted to. Guess I took after my dad in that respect. When I was 15, my dad bought a new Ford Crown Victoria. I was working in the yard with Dad one Saturday. I told him that Wayne Latier, my very good friend and partner in crime, and I would like to take our girlfriends out to dinner and a movie. Could I use the new Ford Victoria? Dad said, oh, sure, which to me meant yes. To him, it must have meant, you have to be kidding, you blockhead. I settled for my interpretation and called Wayne, and we both called our girlfriends for a 7 p.m. date. I got ready. Wayne came over, and I went to Dad and asked for the key. He laughed, and he told me he had no intention of letting me use the car. The blockhead interpretation must have been the more accurate. I was caught in an awkward, embarrassing situation. I didn't know what to do. I lost face in front of Wayne, and our girls were waiting to be picked up. I could not accept this. There had to be a resolution to this predicament. My parents were in the den watching TV. The car was in the garage adjacent to the den. The den was an enclosed breezeway between the garage and the house. When the room was built, the door lock to the door between the garage and den was never reversed. This door could be locked on the inside of the garage, locking anyone in the den out of the garage. I told Wayne to go outside and wait by the garage. I went in the house, got the key off the dresser in my folks' bedroom, went out the front door, out to the garage, locked the door to the den, garage side. Wayne and I got in, and off we drove. We picked up our girlfriends, went to dinner and a drive-in movie. We had a great time. I must admit, however, that I was a little preoccupied with what was going to happen to me when I got home. But I was willing. The risk was worth whatever punishment awaited me. After all, I was sure Dad would not actually kill me. I also kept looking over my shoulder for a cop, thinking my folks might have turned us in for stealing the car. When I got home, my mother was the one ranting and raving. She let me know in no uncertain terms what she thought. Dad had to contain her. I later found out that she wanted to call the police, but Dad prevented it. Dad, on the other hand, was very quiet, yet firm, saying he should have been more clear in his intentions that morning when I asked to use the car. My interpretation did have some merit, after all. I was never to do anything like that again if I knew what was good for me. 
I never did that again, or at least anything exactly like that. I still drove my forty Ford Coupe at night, and other times without permission. After all, it was my car. Why did I need permission? And who needed insurance and a license anyway? The forty Ford Coupe had the unique feature where the back portion of the back seat would swing up to access the trunk from inside the car. The trunk was quite large. It could hold three people and a case of beer very easily. On hot summer evenings, Wayne and a friend or two would get into the trunk with a bucket of ice filled with beer. I would drive into the drive-in theater, buy a ticket, drive in and park, lift up the back seat, and the guys would climb out. We partied and made asses of ourselves for the evening. We did this several times until the ticket man caught on and started checking the trunk. In those days, he just made us pay for everyone. Now I think the police would be called. Back in the fifties, society was more understanding, or at least tolerant, of the antics and rebellious nature of teenagers. The hardcore rebels were dealt with by the law in proper order, but the innocent, rowdy teens testing the waters of freedom and life were just watched closely by the law to make sure they didn't go too far over the line. My first real love was Sandra H. She was more beautiful to me than my forty Ford. She was the cutest girl I had ever seen. I was madly in love. Our favorite song was Nat King Cole's "We Are Not Too Young." In the summer between eighth grade and high school, she moved with her mom and her mom's boyfriend to the east side of town, a good fifteen miles away from where I lived on the west side. I could hardly stand it. If it were not for the forty Ford and my night ride adventures, I would not be able to see her. The move put her in a different school district. At night, I would push my car out the drive, down the street, and go see her. I would tap on her window. She would crawl out. We would go for a ride in the orange groves and park and get to know each other. We never did go any further than kissing, fondling, and holding each other until we fell asleep in each other's arms. A few times, we barely woke up in time to get back home before daybreak. The song "Wake Up, Little Susie" by the Everly Brothers had real meaning for us too. One night, on my way home from seeing Sandra, I was driving along California Avenue, and saw a flashing red light behind me. Just as I had feared, a motorcycle cop. He pulled me over for a burned-out tail light of all things. He asked for my license. Sorry, sir, I do not have one. He told me to get my butt home and get the light fixed, and not to be driving without a license. I don't think anything like that would happen today. The more experienced I became at driving, the bolder I got about taking the car during the day. As great as my forty Ford was, it had problems too. One of these was it had a tendency to overheat on occasions. One warm summer Sunday afternoon, Wayne and I decided it would be fun to get our girlfriends and drive to Taft. A small community about forty miles away, at Old River, a burg about fifteen miles out of town, the car started to heat up. I pulled into a country store gas station. I had problems with overheating before and knew not to remove the radiator cap until the car had cooled down a bit because of the scalding hot water that could be released. I said to Elizabeth Bobbitt, my date, "Let's go in the store and get a cold drink," assuming that Wayne and Judy would follow. We had only been in the store for a few minutes when we heard a blood-curdling scream. I ran outside to see Judy holding her head in her hands, crying. Wayne was holding her, trying to comfort her. 
Wayne thought he would just put some water in the radiator. Judy was standing next to him, watching. He twisted the cap, and water blew out on Judy's face. Within seconds, her face was covered with huge blisters the size of golf balls or bigger. We filled the radiator with water and took off for home and the hospital. We took Judy home. Wayne took Judy to Beale Park and sat with her in the shade of a tree. She had severe burns on her face and arms. I never saw anything like it. The huge water blisters were amazing. This tragedy had a happy ending, however. A few years later, after graduation from high school, Wayne asked Judy to be his wife. She accepted, and I was best man at the wedding. They are still happily married to this day, some fifty years later. In fact, just a few days ago, Wayne called me to be sure I would be going to the fifty-year high school reunion. You bet I'll be there. I only wish I could go in my 1940 Ford Coupe. I learned a lot about cars with that 40 Ford. Something was always wrong with it. Transmission, brakes, radiator, carburetor, fuel pump, you name it. If it could go out, it did. I did most, if not all, of the repairs myself. It was fun, and I enjoyed the mechanic work at first. But after a few years of scraped knuckles and grease under my fingernails that never seemed to disappear, I decided the life of a mechanic was not for me. The full realization of this did not really come completely home until about twenty years later. I always did minor repairs on my cars and always grumbled a little during the process until the day I got a call from my wife. We lived in a town called Los Osos on the central coast of California. Karen worked in a town about fifteen miles to the south called Grover City, now Grover Beach, where she taught school. On her way to work one morning at the north end of Pismo Beach, the water pump in our Ford Ranchero pickup went out. Karen called to tell me something terrible had happened to the truck. She parked it at a gas station. At the time, I was a self-employed building contractor. I had one employee. We were building an addition onto a house in Los Osos. I outlined work for my employee and grabbed my tools and took off for Pismo Beach. It was about ten in the morning when I finally headed out. Sure enough, it was the water pump. I got permission from the gas station man to work in his parking lot. I struggled to remove the water pump with tools obviously made for tasks other than water pump removal. After a good length of time, scraped knuckles, and several French words, I got the water pump off. Then I had to search for a parts house. I ended up having to drive back about twelve miles to San Luis Obispo to find the right pump. This was in the days before there were chief autos or some such on every other corner. It was well into the afternoon before I got back to Pismo Beach to install the water pump. I repeated the same scenario of removal to install the pump, only in reverse, right down to the French words. I got the job done. The car ran just like it was intended to. The day was shot, and my wife got home before me. I did not enjoy the task either. I went over to thank the gas station man for letting me work in his lot. He said, "No problem," and added, "That sure took you a long time." Telling me he would have done it for me in about two hours at a cost of about forty dollars plus the cost of the pump. I went home and added up the hours spent, the hours of lost work that I could not bill for, the cost of the pump without discount, and the mileage and drive time. If I had stayed at work and had the car repaired at the gas station, I would have been money ahead, considerably so. That was the last time I did any auto mechanic type work on any of my cars, aside from changing tires and checking oil, etc.
I also have a lot of respect for auto mechanics. Most of them, anyway. The most difficult job on the 40 Ford was to do a brake job or pack the wheel bearings. The hubs had to be knocked off with a special tool called a knocker, a fancy nut with a plunger in the center which you hit with a sledgehammer and which only worked after a long ritual of threats and a variety of French words. When you are young, it is easy to endure such things, probably because you don't know any better. Another unique feature about the 40 Ford was the windshield wipers. The wipers worked off a vacuum pressure. In the rain, the wipers would slow down and even stop when you stepped on the gas to accelerate, then speed up and almost fly off the car when stopping or slowing the car with compression. It was a trip to drive the car in the rain. It was like a jerky ride at a carnival or an adventure ride with my mother at the wheel. I am now 67 years old. Many years have passed from the adventures in my 40 Ford Coupe. I have had many different cars since then, and technically much better performing and more comfortable cars. But when a car memory comes to mind, it is the 40 Ford Coupe. I have two scaled-down replicas of this car, one on a bookshelf at home, the other on a windowsill in my office. One of the consultants I work with is an old classic car buff. Learning about my history of having a 40 Ford Coupe, he has been sending me ads of 40 Ford Coupes for sale. The price tags range between $30,000 and $40,000. This is a far cry from the $300 I paid for my first car in 1954. The thought of buying a 40 Ford Coupe is very tempting. And seeing the current price tag, I am kicking myself for selling the one I had. But it is out of the question. There are no drive-in theaters anymore. Wayne is not likely to want to crawl in a trunk with a case of beer. And Sandra, she too is 67 and no longer lives in East Bakersfield. And the orange groves are no more. Spent all my money on a pretty old car. Can't buy no gas so I can't go far. We can just sit and look real nice. This pretty old car was sure worth the price. Here we sit in my pretty old car. Kiss and drink moonshine from a jar. Can't buy no gas, so we park on the curb. A sign on the dash says, do not disturb. The pretty old car. The pretty old car. The pretty old car. That was James Varner's story, My 40 Ford Coupe, as read by Marv Allen. Even though James seems to have done a lot of things that are considered pretty risky, if not downright illegal, like, for example, taking his parents' car without their knowledge and getting caught driving without a license, he seems to have such a friendly, positive personality that somehow people don't have any problem overlooking his transgressions. And although on the surface this story is about cars, well, it's also about the author and his ways of having a lot of fun without getting himself into serious trouble. Friends, our first author tonight, Anne DeVigo, is a freelance writer and award-winning journalist. She graduated from Fresno State and now lives in Sacramento. Her fiction has appeared in a number of literary magazines, and she has also been a winner in the Sacramento Friends of the Library reading program. Thank you, Anne, for your absorbing story.
And we want to thank both Anne DeVigo and James Bonner for their stories tonight and certainly hope that they will be submitting more of their literary fiction in seasons to come. And so we come to the end of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to listen to tonight's or any other of Valley Writers Read programs, just go online to kvpr.org and link up with archived audio. Next week, our author will be Larry Hill. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a weekly series produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk for Valley Public Radio. Please join us again next Wednesday at the same time for another edition of Valley Writers Read. <laughs>